16. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the tradition even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. And, um, it's great to be heading through uh, this passage. Um, the, um, we've, as Ebony mentioned, we've been moving through the book of 1 Corinthians, and so we, we preach that kind of cover to cover, and, uh, and that means that you come across passages like this. Um, after sort of preaching through a series on gender, sexuality, and identity, I decided I still had a few friends left, so I thought I'd <laughs> finish that off today uh, by preaching through this one. But, um, but it does matter that, uh, that we engage with passages that can be confronting. It's an ancient Near Eastern text, and so we shouldn't expect that everything's going to fit in our culture. But also we believe this is the very Word of God. And when the Word of God enters any culture in the world, whether that be here, the Middle East, Africa, South America, there'll be things that it affirms and things that it confronts. And so often these kind of passages are a real test of how we approach the Word of God. And it reminds me of, um, of one sort of instance that, uh, that a friend of mine was in just sort of recently. We've got a mutual friend. So my, my Graham, um, oh, you know him, Graham Edwards, he's one of our link missionaries. We have a mutual friend who's reasonably just is known for being quite a hard-headed person. And they went out for coffee one day, and, um, and it was this, guy, this other guy's local, and he'd invited him around, and he said, um, look, what coffee do you want, Graham? Let me get it for you. And, uh, and Graham said, oh, no, it's fine. Look, I'll, I'll get mine. He's like, he insisted. He's like, no, 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 I'll, I'll get it for you. What do you want? And he said, uh, I'll just get a cappuccino. And he said, cappuccino? Two flat whites, please. And, I, <laughs> and it, like, so Graham was kind of miffed. But uh, it's, it's funny. It was, so, it was so typical of this guy. And I love the thought process that went through it. Like, obviously, in his head, he's said to him, you know, what coffee do you want? And he said, cappuccino. He's like, but I wouldn't want a cappuccino. So how could you possibly want one? You must obviously want what I want. Two flat whites it is, right? 
And it's funny in those kind of instances when those sort of things happen because you're like the absurdity of it that you'd be like you would override someone's own preferences because you're like they just couldn't possibly think differently to me, right? And yet, when we approach the Word of God like that, it's not so funny. If we come to any text of the Bible and we say, God, you couldn't possibly think or say whatever it is because that doesn't immediately resonate with me, then is God God? Do we believe God? Do we trust God? Or ultimately, do we trust ourselves? And when we open up the Scripture, what we're really looking for is us and things that agree or align with what we already think is right and true and good. Because if so, God is not God to us. But oftentimes, these kind of decisions are the clutch plays. And the question over whether or not we will really let God run the ball or whether or not we decide, actually, what I think and decide is right and wrong for me is what's right and wrong. And so today we come to a controversial passage mostly because we in our culture are in the middle of change. When a culture has very established views about gender and sexuality and identity and marriage, when they're not really changed, even minority views are not particularly controversial. But when things are actually turning over and things are changing significantly, everything becomes a hot topic because everything becomes a battleground. And so because this passage deals with some of that stuff, It becomes, in some ways, a controversial passage. But it matters how you approach it. I remember reading, uh, watching a a documentary with Richard Dawkins, and he, um, if you don't know about him, he's a renowned biologist, and he's a very, very vocal, very public figure uh, for atheism. They call him one of the four horses, four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse. And he did a documentary where he went around interviewing churches and church leaders, and uh, and he met uh, one church leader who was from what you'd call sort of like a liberal church, they, they sort of held the Bible reasonably loosely. Um, and he said to him, he's like, you know what, like, in many ways I despise Christianity and, and I think it's a superstition and that people base their lives on it, it's ridiculous, all of that, right? But he said, but for those people who hold the Bible and take it seriously, I feel sorry for them, but I get it. It's kind of consistent. They say the Bible says this, so they do this. And he says to this guy, he says, but I don't get you. If you just pick and choose what bits of the Bible you like, why even call yourself a Christian in the first place? And called him out right there and then. And he started sort of stuttering and you know, bumbling sort of through it. Um, but it is a real question. If we just, either all the Word of God is, is the Word of God, or it isn't. Either we choose and pick the passages that we like or that affirm what we like, or we don't. See, Paul causes him, Timothy, to watch our life and doctrine closely. Then it matters how we treat the Word of God, how we examine the Word of God, and how we sit under the Word of God. And it is the case that anyone who is here, who is a Christian, has been charged to pass the gospel on uncompromised, untainted. And many Christians across the world right now are dying because they refuse to deny the word of God. So we too, how dare we treat God's word with contempt as we sit even under difficult passages like this, that our call is to be cautious and careful to think things through and to be humble. And there are things as I've thought and weighed this through, that I may be wrong on, there's a range of faithful interpretations. But really, where you land on this passage probably isn't as important as why. Have you already in your mind decided what God can and can't speak into? Or will you let God be God? So I pray that as we look at this passage, God will be doing two things. That we'd be understanding what he has to say in 1 Corinthians 11, though it's a tricky passage to work through. But also as we consider our hearts, that we will know that God is God and he is good. And the God of the cross is also the God before whom's word we come. So let's pray.
Father, we praise you that you haven't left us as orphans in the world, that you are a holy God, and yet you've given us your word that we might know your will, how it is you desire us to live. We praise you for the cross, that you've forgiven us our sins and set us free. And we pray that as we look at your word, we'd be looking to live into this freedom, to know the truth of 1 John 5, that your commands are not burdensome, but are for our good. And that as we live this out, Lord, that we would know the joy of following you all our days. And we pray this for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, this letter, 1 Corinthians, as we've sort of mentioned week to week, is written by a guy called Paul. Hated Christians, he murdered Christians, he imprisoned Christians, he beat Christians. He tried to intimidate people out of following Jesus until he realized that Jesus was the truth and he went from killing Christians to being killed for being a Christian. But before his early death, he was so convinced of the truth of the gospel, of the truth that Jesus is worthy and good and all of life should come under him, that he went around telling people and planning churches, telling people about the gospel. He starts in Jerusalem, he gets kicked out of there, he moves up through Assyria and Turkey and all the way around to Greece and keeps planting churches until he finds himself at this little uh, area at the bottom of Greece called Corinth. And he plants a church there and kind of moves on. He gets a letter a few years later and people are saying, look, there's some problems back here, we need your help. And so he writes this letter, 1 Corinthians, to address a bunch of issues. And up until this point, he's, he's addressed things like church unity, They're kind of divided with each other. They're not being humble. They're judging each other, and he deals with that. They've got a bunch of issues around sexual ethics, and Paul speaks into that, how the gospel impacts all of those things. And now for the next few chapters, we're looking at what happens when this church gathers together publicly. So the next three chapters from 11 through to 14 are going to deal with what happens when this church, kind of like us today, come together and gather publicly where other people can come in and join. And the issue that they're dealing with here is around something to do with head coverings. They've obviously asked him a question about head coverings, but Paul starts not with head coverings especially, but with God and who he is. Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 11, 2-3. to He says, Now I commend you, because you remember, with me, uh, you remember me in everything, and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the wife is a husband, and the head of Christ is God. And before we deal with this issue of headship and marriage and what that actually means, he starts with the reality of who God is in and of himself. And we dive into a profound reality, this idea of God being three and yet one. Christianity is, is, is marked down as one of the monotheistic religions, meaning that, that we believe there is one God. And yet out of all the world religions, Christianity is the only one that believes that God is one and yet three. The belief is that there is one God, God is three persons, and each person is fully God. Now it's been said of this reality, which is called the Trinity, it's been said of this that if you deny the Trinity, you lose your soul, and if you try to understand the Trinity, you lose your mind. And there is a truth to that. But I think it's it's helpful in reflecting on this, because for me, the doctrine, the teaching of the Trinity, affirms the truth of Scripture to me. If God was so easily understood that he was basically just a giant person in the sky, it would be quite easy to believe that this was a made-up, man-made religion. And yet, if God was so confusing and transcendent that you couldn't even make sense of it, that it's a contradictory reality, then that too would be useless. And yet, here in the Trinity, you get both. You see that in many ways, God is very relatable. And then in other ways, there are things that are hard to understand about him because he is beyond us. 
I remember when I'd just become a Christian, I was wrestling with this idea of the Trinity, and someone explained it to me. They said, look, it's like water. Water comes as, you know, as steam, water, and as ice. And that's kind of, you know, that's three in one, like the Trinity. I thought, oh, that's, that's really easy to get your head around. Until someone else said, that makes no sense at all. Water is in one of those states at any given time. It's only in one of those states at any given time. There's nothing three about it. When it's hot, it's gas. When it's room temperature, it's water. And when it's frozen, it's ice. It's not all three at once. If you were to, if you were to translate that to God, that means that God was kind of God in heaven, the Father, and then he kind of transported to earth and took on another form, and then he becomes the Holy Spirit, but never all three at once. There's a weak illustration. And people throw around all kinds of illustrations. God's like an egg. <laughs> like, if that was really that helpful, it would be in the Bible. God is like an egg? And th- at that point, it's just like, just, just find anything that's got three. God is like a car. It's got a front and a back and a middle. Like, you just, there's nothing to it. The reason you can't find an illustration that will summarize the very nature of God simply and easily is because there is no one or nothing like God. There is no simple illustration because if there was, he wouldn't be God. Who would worship something you could summarize like an egg? It's not worthy of your worship. Unless God, in some ways, unless there are some things about God that are actually beyond our understanding, he's not God and he's not worthy of your whole life and he's certainly not worthy of your worship. But Paul starts here with the Trinity. And this matters because if you, if you resonate with the idea that God is love, you need the doctrine of the Trinity. You need it. C.S. Lewis says, All sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love. But they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God is at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person then before the world was made, he was not love. And that's the claim of the scripture, that God is love. Many other religions believe that God is singular, and so at the beginning of the universe, God was power. And that power is at the center of the universe. But we believe, because of the Trinity, that it's love, that God was a community of love in and of himself before the world began. He wasn't lonely. He didn't need us. He was full and complete. And when he creates humankind... He invites us into this community of being of love. And so Paul says, just as there is order in the Trinity, so in God's creation in humankind, there is that same essence and equalness of value and of being, and yet difference. He says here that, that God is the head of Christ, that when Jesus walked on earth, he said that he sought to do his Father's will. When he's wrestling in the garden with tears about to die on the cross for our sin, he says, not my will but yours. There is this ordering within the Godhead. And so Paul says, just, as, just so as it is that, that God is the head of Christ, Christ the head of man and the church. And then he says, so the husband is the head of the wife. Now what does that mean? That evokes all kinds of things. It evokes a sense of superiority of dominance, of taking charge. But Paul doesn't explain it in, in those terms. In 1 Corinthians eleven seven to 8 Paul writes it like this, uh, referring back to Genesis 2. He says, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of, of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. He's referring back to Genesis 1 and 2, where in Genesis 1 we see that all humankind is made in the image of God. That means every human, regardless of who they are, 
has inherent dignity and worth, and their life is protectable. They are made in the image of God. And then in, in chapter 2, it kind of slows down frame by frame what happens. And it starts with God creating the world, and he creates man and creates him primarily to subdue the earth. That is, he has charged man with working the earth. And so because of that, we see in this that there's a difference in physicality between men and women. And so after that, he says that this, this is not good, that man should be alone, and so he creates woman. This is what Paul's referring to when he says, woman is the glory of man, that man was less glorious. He was incomplete. Humankind was incomplete until woman was there as well. That we need man and woman together. But in this passage, it mentions that the man is created and then woman is created from the man, equal by his side, but as helper. Now that word helper doesn't denote inferiority. It's used more of God than it is of woman in, this, in the Old Testament. This is the one reference to it. But what it indicates was that man was incomplete, that he needed help, that in order to fulfill the charge, to subdue the earth and to fill it, it would need man and woman together. And so they are together, equal, made in the image of God, and yet they are distinct. He's saying this reality reflects the Trinity. Man was created with this primary role of work, and woman is given this primary charge of the creation of new life made in the image of God. That doesn't mean that only men work and only women make babies, that both are a part of this subduing the earth and filling it. And we know that this is the case because in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul outlines how the gift of singleness is huge. So it's not that just men and women are there to make babies. Actually, they're there to serve God, but there is this difference between them that is good and significant. And really, this reality, this idea of headship in marriage just acknowledges, in one sense, the difference between men and women that permeates all of reality. It is the case that men and women experience the world differently because we experience it through our bodies. There's a, an article written this week called Women's Fear of Public Spaces Cannot Be Ignored. And the author writes this. She says, Ask any woman about her experiences of public space and you're likely to be met with a visible bristle as she remembers all the times she was subjected to unwanted harassment, abuse, or even physical violence. Simply put, we are told to exercise caution in the public space because of bad people, but we are disbelieved when we then take charge of our stories and offer accounts of the very things we are told to be afraid of. Even with something as inane as public transport, men and women experience it differently because we were made differently. Men don't experience public transport in the same way women do. Men don't experience sex in the same way that women do. Men don't ent- experience the workplace in the same way that women do. In short, men enter all of these spaces with a lack of vulnerability, with a power that women don't experience. And this is significant. This is true even if you're not a very physically big man. This is true even if you're bullied. All of this is true, and it's especially true in marriage, isn't it? The men and women don't enter in a marriage in the same in the same position. Men come into to marriage in a position of power, being physically larger and often louder, sometimes culturally even more likely to be listened to. And this is significant. But headship in the Bible is when men are commanded that to take all of these strengths and to use it to serve and to honor their wife. That's what headship is in Scripture. It's not the man being the boss. It's not the man making all the decisions. It's not the man taking charge. It's the man saying, using his God-given strength to serve and to help his wife to flourish, to honor her. 
And Paul writes about this in greater detail in another book called Ephesians, in sentences 22 to 32. Look at what he says in, in Ephesians 5. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. So again, he's comparing this to Christ. That's his example. It says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul is saying here, Christ is the head of the church. And how did he use that strength? To serve the church. That Christ our head laid down his life at the cross, that the church might be born and that it might actually flourish. And he's saying, in the same way, husbands, love your wives. God has made you different. He said, the strength that you have is there to serve and to honor them, to cause them to flourish. This doesn't mean that he's the one who is the sole provider. It doesn't mean that he's the one who gets to call the shots. It means that he's the one who has a greater burden to serve. Even as it says in Scripture, to whom much has been given, much will be asked. And so he's to take a primary role in serving and loving his wife and his family. But the question that comes with this is, is this teaching... Even though this reality might be a little bit less controversial than the actual sound of it, is this teaching dangerous? Julie Baird put out a helpful report recently on domestic violence in the church. And some of the findings around that were significant. One of the findings was that men who attend church regularly are the least dangerous, the least likely to abuse their wives in society. But a group that are more likely are men who attend church sporadically and are likely to cherry-pick verses and misuse them in order to intimidate or to bully or to even abuse their wives. And I want to say clearly from the front here, if that is you, that you stand under condemnation under the Word of God, that it says in Scripture you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of God, that if you've manipulated the Word of God in order to intimidate or abuse someone else, then you will face God, and he's the one who says that anything done in secret will be brought to light. There is a call to you to repent. And if you are a wife whose husband is using his strength to intimidate or to bully, I want to say that God is not calling you to politely endure this or to persevere through it, but to call it out. And if you were to do that at church today, if you were to speak to one of us or one of the leaders, we will listen, we will hear, and we will believe you. Even if you've been in a context before where you, it hasn't been handled properly, I'm so sorry for that. But we'll take you seriously and we'll act. It isn't right and it isn't a right application of biblical teaching. The right application is to look to Christ and to say, those who have any kind of strength or power to use it to serve for the good of others. That is what it's meant to do. And so what Paul is outlining here is that this is the principle 
And then the cultural sort of issue that's coming up around this is, is this thing around head coverings. Have a look back in, it, in 1 Corinthians 11, 4 to 12, at what he says on this. It says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covers dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair short or shave her head, let her, hair, let, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither man was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. The first question that comes up here is, what is this talk of head coverings? What is actually going on here? And kind of... Uh, commentators have sort of debated this back and forth. Is it talking about, like, in this instance, some kind of a, a veil or a shawl that the woman is wearing? Others say, no, look, kind of looking at the end of the passage, is just talking about length of hair, so it's the idea that they kind of wore their hair up. But it's unclear whether it's a covering or whatever it is. What is clear is that it was a symbol of marriage in the ancient world. And the wife would do something to her hair, whether to cover it or to put it up, to signify that she was married. And so Paul is saying here, when you get up in church and you're doing something public, it seems that the women in this church were not wearing a covering or whatever it was. And he was saying, look, given that that is the culturally appropriate way of expressing marriage and this married relationship and the headship of the husband, then do it. And he, he gives a couple of cross examples there. He says, look, are there any guys in your church that are getting up and covering their head? Well, if you follow the culture in that sense, why not in this one? says, are there any women who are getting up with their heads shaved? Now this, in an ancient culture, and particularly in Corinth, that was a symbol of slavery. The woman would have her head shaved and it was meant to humiliate her. This isn't a reference to, to, to hairstyles. It was a very public comment. And he's saying, look, if you abide by the culture in that sense, why not by this thing? In short, he's saying, look, if you agree with the principle, then, then go with the culturally appropriate way of expressing that. He's saying here, show honor to your husband by, by doing this, if that's the culturally appropriate way to do it. And we do this in all kinds of cultures. One of my friends headed over to a, a culture where, for men, it was absolutely anathema that you should have long hair. The you, you would not be invited to sit down and even have tea if that were the case. Now, he had long hair. He didn't believe that that was, uh, you know, and especially in our culture, that that was... Uh, the way to, to express masculinity or femininity. But when he went over there, he's like, look, it's fine. I'm not that precious about it. I cut my, my hair short just for the sake of um, for this culture. He agreed that, look, men and women are different. There are different ways of expressing that. So he's like, look, it's, it's fine. It's a culturally appropriate way of doing it. And Paul is saying, look, in this, in this context here in Corinth, he's saying, look, if you, if you believe that marriage is this covenant relationship, and the way of showing respect to her husband was to do this. He's saying, then do it. So otherwise you get up publicly and those outsiders who come in or even the church will think, ah, obviously she's not married or obviously her husband isn't worthy of respect. Now I've mentioned here that this is just that culture. And of course, no one here is really wearing head coverings and so I'm guessing no one else thinks that. But the question is, why? If the Word of God can go anywhere and, and say anything and, and God is God... Why is it that we aren't doing it? Is it just we, we look through Scripture and go, well, that seems a bit outdated, so I guess we won't do that. If that were the case, I mean, why not throw the lot out? 
on the chapters that we look through on sexual ethics, why don't we say, well, look, that's kind of how they, they were a bit more uptight back then and we kind of know things now. How do you decide what things you throw out or what things you keep? Well, the way you do it is that we hold that the Bible is its own interpreter. That the Bible, uh, passages in the Bible interpret other passages in the Bible. Now look at what Paul says at the end of this chapter, 1 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15. He says this, Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So he's making it clear that there's something at work here that isn't up for discussion. He's saying we have no other such practices. But we know that it's not just the hairstyles, because he says here, for a man to have long hair is a disgrace to him. And we know that's not the case, because in Numbers, chapter 6, there's a thing outlined called a Nazarite vow. And if a man was to set himself apart to the Lord, and to take a vow to devote his whole life to God, what he would do is he would take a, a vow to say, I'll drink no alcohol, I will touch no unclean thing, and I will not cut my hair. And so often, if you've wondered why the pictures of Jesus often depict him with long hair, it's because he was from Nazareth, and the assumption was that he'd probably taken a Nazarite vow because he was really holy. The only problem is that we know that he went to a party and made a ton of wine, so he probably hadn't taken a Nazarite vow. And so, but anyway, good on them for making him look like a, you know, a surfer boy and whatnot. But... Um, <laughs> But Paul, as a Jewish scholar, would have been very aware that this was the case. So we know that he's not outlining a biblical principle saying that God regulates kind of hairstyles. What he's saying, the principle here is this idea of marriage, of the husband and wife in a covenant together, and of honoring this thing of male headship where he is to serve and to love her primarily. And he says in that particular culture, the way to do that was whatever was going on on top of the head there. And he's saying, keep going with that. That's fine. But the question then would be, how do we apply this today? We don't have a similar custom to inhabit. There's nothing you could do up front here publicly that would indicate something kind of similar. But while the methods might change with culture, the principle remains the same. And the idea in this is, was that, that here, the wives were called to respect their husbands and the husbands called to serve and to love their wives. And that still applies. See, one point on this might be, if you are married and you have a husband, do you honour him with how you speak about him? I was uh, sitting down in a cafe next to, um, there was a mother's group that had kind of pulled up. And, um, and I was kind of talking about uh, this and that. And um, not that I was listening to the whole conversation, but whatever. <laughs> and... Um, <coughs> There were, their kids were coming and like, taking my keys and stuff, and I had to pretend that was cute and not annoying. But anyway, um, so I was hearing what was going on. But, um, but one of the mums kind of said, um, it mentioned her husband's name, whatever it was, and said, oh, and such and such has got golf on the weekend. And I tell you, it was, it was on after that. It became, like, it became almost like a, a game of like, whose, whose husband was the biggest moron? And it was kind of like piling on evidence upon evidence, and it, just, it was an all-in kind of just, just feeding frenzy. I was thinking, look, if, if you were a Christian woman sitting in on that conversation, it would be very hard not to jump in on that. Presumably, your husband is a sinner. Unless he's Jesus, he is a sinner. And therefore, there would be reason and there would be things that he's not doing well. There might be areas where as a head, he's not doing well. 
But the call in our culture would be to respect him. And it might be true that your husband is a genuine battler and he needs help. But what he needs, what he needs is Christ and not mockery. No one was ever mocked into doing something well, were they? I mean, you teach kids, how do you motivate them? You don't, you don't mock them into the ground, right? Ebony had the opportunity during the week to say, oh, you think you're tough, you're 14, you're, you still get mistaken for your sister on the phone. What are you talking about weakness, right? You're going to absolutely destroy them. And yeah, it's not going to help. If you want your husband to thrive as a head, to use his God-given strength to serve and to honor, he needs more of Christ. He needs to get a vision of Christ where he sees that's what it means to be a man and I want to be like that. I mean, Clementine Ford wrote an article this week called It Takes a Village to Raise a Child and Let That Village Have Lots of Men. And she says, There are a lot of cliches and sayings that get thrown around following the birth of a baby, but none are so apt as this one. It takes a village to raise a child. And boy, do we really need men in that village. Uh, ultimately, I invite men to be part of my child's village because I think there's value to be had both for the men in recognizing their role in this village and for children in seeing men in this role. It is the case that men and women need each other. Paul goes on to say the woman is not independent of man and man is not independent of, of woman. That you need one another. God has made us different to be a blessing to one another. That we are essentially of the same worth and value and significance and different so that we might bless in different ways. And here the article is saying she wants men to be a part of this because really when it comes to kids, they need men and women in their life, both their mum and their dad and wider relationships, but there's only one sex that tends to be missing in child raising and that's the men. Wives, invite your husbands, encourage them to be involved dads. To be involved in the marriage and involved dads. And the way to do that is to encourage them to follow Christ. It is the case that we need men to step up more. And the principle here of headship in marriage still applies to men. That you are called not to be passive. It is the case and it is unfortunately the pattern that men are the ones who often disappear from relationships and from families. They use this God-given strength and the lack of vulnerabilities. Instead of stepping in to serve more, they step out to get away with more. And it's an unfortunate pattern. And headship is saying, guys, you need to step up. Don't lay all this burden on your wife. You should be there to serve and to love and to honor her. That men and women are needed. And even more widely in this church context, I mean, even going back to, to Ford's article on, on this idea of a village, that the church itself should be a village that helps raise the next generation. Where it's not just women taking out the charge to look after the young ones, but where older men are stepping in as role models outside of that family relationship to help as well. Paul says, Women is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman is made from man, so now a man is born of woman, and all things are from God. God has made us different and yet the same in essence and value and dignity. And we're called to live out this reality in the church, even in the 21st century. That it's a blessing. And as we do, we start to mirror the Trinity, God himself, who is of one essence and yet three persons. This community of love from whom the gospel of love came. And so let's pray that we'd have strength to do that. Let's pray.
God, we praise you that you are good, that you love us with an everlasting love. You've created and shaped and designed us. And we pray that as we consider these things, we consider the weight of who you are, that we might know you closely, that we might imitate you, that we would know the truth of the gospel, that we've been set free to serve and to love one another with whatever unique gifts you have given us. And Father, we pray that men and women would flourish in this church community, would thrive together and look to serve and love one another. And Father, we pray these things that you might be glorified in your church as you deserve. Amen.